As uh, some of you know, I promised to speak tonight on uh, the subject of the case for bigger government. <laughs> Not exciting. Uh, you may think that that's an odd thing to speak about at a Christmas Eve service. In fact, you may think that there's no appropriate context for speaking on a political issue like that in a church service. And certainly an issue like the role and size of the government is one that is bound to create some uh, friction. And God knows our own families create enough of that this time of year. Uh, so we have a huge divide over this issue in uh, American society. Some people think that government expansion is really a wonderful thing, and others think it's really a terrible thing. Take a minute uh, with me to consider the perspective on both ends of that issue. Uh, those ends normally referred to as left-wing and right-wing, and don't panic, we're going to bring all this back to the Christmas story. First, there are those who are all in favor of bigger government, of expanding the scope and the reach of the state. Now, I understand where someone with this perspective would be coming from. Now, mind you, their aim is not to make the government bigger. That's not what they're about, not increasing the size of the government. No, no. That is why if you ask someone who holds that perspective, if they are for the expansion of the government, they would typically say, no, 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 no. I, I think of a time when President Obama was introducing the Affordable Care Act, and he actually during that time said that he was against bigger government, but through that act, he may have done more to extend the reach of the government than anyone probably since uh, FDR. But President Obama did not see himself as wanting to increase the size of the government, but he did want to do things that he thought was very important through means of the government, and, and he did that in significant proportions. Why? Because, again, he saw the government as a tool to do good. He, like anybody on the left side of the political debate, believed that there are many problems in society that government can solve and should solve, and it just so happens that in the process of providing governmental solutions to our problems, you invariably increase the size and the scope of the government. Uh, one long ago, I read the uh, biography of Harry S. Truman by, was it David McCullough, right? One of his extensive works. By the way, who knows what uh, S stands for in Harry S. Truman? Stands for S. That's all. <laughs> That's all. He didn't get a middle name, but he, he threw that in there just for appearance sake, I think. A 1,200-page book about, uh, about Truman, a president I didn't know much about. But he comes off in the book as being a very practical man. He was not an ideologue as we would think of it. He would have never written a book on political philosophy or anything of the sort. But through some fascinating twists, this relatively uneducated man, I believe the last president uh, who wasn't college educated, uh, he became the president of the United States. Now, as a practical man, his approach was to detect problems and to solve them. As president, his tool for solving those problems would have been, of course, the federal government. And so he followed in the footsteps of his predecessor, Mr. Roosevelt, by expanding what the federal government was going to do and how much it spent and how much control it would have in the lives of its citizens. He believed he was doing good through government, and so expanding the government was for him a good thing. But not everyone 
agreed with that or agrees with that now. There are those on what we call the right wing of the political debate who view government expansion as a bad thing and would claim that an increase in the size and power of the government, oh, it may do some good, but will ultimately lead to more harm than help. Folks on the right love to quote Ronald Reagan, who said the 10 scariest words in the English language is, hi, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. They say that a government big enough to provide everything you want is a government big enough to take everything you have. They quote Thomas Jefferson, who said the natural progression of things is for liberty to yield and government to gain ground. And they point us to situations and places like you have, oh, where there's uh, obvious, as we would see it, I think, uh, government overreach, such as you have in Tucson, Arizona, where I'm told they have forbidden smoking by all of the city's employees, even when they're away from the office. Now, you, you would look at that and say, well, they're, they're concerned about the health of their employees. They want to help people quit smoking. Uh, but the end result is they do so by taking away certain freedoms that folks feel they ought to be able to enjoy. So there you have it in a nutshell. This is sort of the, there's a lot of issues of debate, but this is sort of the major political divide in our country. The big question, does government expansion solve more problems or create more problems? And you know what? It's not an easy question to resolve. Some may answer one way for domestic issues and another way for foreign affairs. Person A wants to expand social programs and cut the money that we invest in the military. Person B wants to do it exactly the other way around, cut the military or expand the military and cut domestic programs. Uh, and the interests, generally speaking, are positive on both ends. Those that want to expand uh, or increase government's power for military's sake want to be able to take on China and Iran and Russia. Uh, you know, and the Republican Party is generally seen as the party committed to controlling the size of the government, but that party is hopelessly divided over the reach of government with respect to defense, at least that, if not other issues, and uh, the Democratic side of the aisle is probably equally torn over exactly where they want the government to be big and where they want it to be small. These are really tough issues. So what does the Bible have to say about the size and scope of government? Well, I heard a uh, lecture on John Witherspoon not too long ago. He was, by the way, the only clergyman to sign the Declaration of Independence. You know that? John Witherspoon. Uh, and uh, he was considered also to be the father or the grandfather, maybe, of the Constitution because of his terrific influence on James Madison, who was the primary author of that great document. And Madison wrote it under the influence of Witherspoon uh, in the light of what Scripture says about the depravity of man. Madison and the founders of our country, because of what they saw in Scripture and what they noticed in their observation of history, wanted there to be a limit on the power to any single individual. They designed a government with checks and balances. Very good. Still awake. And with a bill of rights that severely limited the scope and power of the government. Now, you read what our founders said, and it's apparent that they felt that big government was uh, more of a threat than a help 
to our human flourishing. And of course, in part, that was a reaction to the, uh, to the long arm of the king of, of England, uh, which they did not appreciate. So that's how we ended up with a constitutional republic. You like our government in this country? A government that Lincoln said is government of the people, by the people, for the people? Do you think that our form of government in our country is close to ideal? You can talk about this over dinner tomorrow. <laughs> uh, well, I grant that, that it was created with a biblical view of humanity in mind. In that respect, it is wise and good. But one can hardly claim that it is the, the supreme expression of what a government should be. Winston Churchill, in fact, once said that democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. <laughs> and uh, you get this point because all governments ultimately are led by fallen men and women. Well, this is certainly a very odd Christmas Eve service. Stay around. There's a little shift in the focus right now. There is a form of government that I'm going to suggest tonight is recommended in Scripture. It's even recommended in the New Testament portion of the Bible. It is commended to us even in the Christmas story, and it is a form of a monarchy. Call it a Christocracy. We're going to look at two passages, one in the Gospels, the other in the Prophets, Luke 1, verse 26, the well-known story of the announcement to Mary. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. <laughs> and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, his monarchy, will have no end. Those last two verses tell us that a little baby Jesus will be given something. What is he given? He is given a throne. A throne. Anybody asking for a throne for Christmas? Game of Thrones, maybe, but a throne? Probably not. But Jesus, he gets a throne. And, and who sits on a throne? Huh? What kind of person sits on a throne? A king, a ruler, a monarch. Verse 33 of our passage drives the point home further because it says there that Jesus will do what? He will reign. He will reign. The historical context of the Christmas story is the promise that God made to David about 3,000 years ago that one of his 
offspring, his great-great-great-grandsons, would become the king of Israel, and his rule would be unbelievable, but here's the word he used, forever. He would be a forever king. Now, that's why the Jewish people were looking for this person, this descendant of David that they called the Messiah, which is anointed one in reference to the king and his anointing. And one thing everybody knew was that this king, this Messiah character, had to be a descendant of David. Now, between the time God told David about his plan, that was around 1000 BC, and the time the angel spoke to Mary, God spoke through another of his prophets, confirming and elaborating on the promise. It's in Isaiah chapter 9, one of those passages that are often read at uh, Christmas time. Let's look at that together, chapter 9 and verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Verse 6. For a child will be born to us. Go ahead and read it with me. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Well, that is, that is absolutely marvelous, isn't it? The promise of a child, a son, a Messiah who will take on the weight of the government. He will rule on the throne of David. He will come in humility. He will come in lowliness, but will grow to be a man, the only perfect and the only obedient man who will proceed to lay down his life for the sake of his people. And then having defeated death on the cross, he will rise from the grave in conquest over sin and Satan. And having done that, he ascends to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, to the place of all power, and is made by God the Father, the King, the Sovereign, the Monarch of all the earth. <laughs> and, and then from his place of power... He begins to exert his rule. He begins the transformation of the earth. Slowly, painfully slowly, as we would assess it. But he is doing it. And the promise of Luke chapter 1. And the promise of 2 Samuel 7. And the promise of Isaiah 9. Is that his government will increase. It will expand. It will enlarge its scope and its influence. And, and if you think the expansion of the rule of Christ is a good thing, let me hear you say amen. amen. Okay, you're pretty confident. You must be following me. All right. You too, you see, are in favor of bigger government. <laughs> you didn't know that, some of you, I understand. But in fact, you are. You are with me in this. We want to see the rule of Jesus grow more expansive. That's an awesome word in verse 7 where it says, There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. And we are, I can say with confidence, for all believers everywhere, regardless of your party and perspective on American government, we are for this. We want the peace of Jesus, 
the justice of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea, this earth that is so desperately in need of those very things, peace, justice, righteousness. Now understand, uh, you know, we don't elect the king in this situation, not, not exactly at least. He is appointed to his position by God, his father, but it is our place to embrace his appointment, to support that appointment, to live out his kingship practically in our lives, to make sure that the one who is the king is my king. And, and that's my challenge to you this Christmas Eve. Don't just read the lovely verses about the king. Don't just sing the hymns that say, Hail the everlasting Lord. Crown him king in your heart. Your heart is where it has to begin. It does not end there. No, no, no. The rule of Jesus that begins in my heart goes from there to our, the family where we crown him as Lord of our homes, and then it impacts the, the church. Uh, we make sure the reign of Jesus is a practical reality at North Park Church, that his government is expanding here and among us, and then we take it to the world. Abraham Kuyper, well-known Dutch theologian of a couple of generations back, is famous for this line. There is, well, let's read it together again. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! Uh, mine. If you have a two-year-old, you may be familiar with that word. Uh, <laughs> but Jesus says it too. It is all his. What Kuiper and what the Bible are affirming is an approach to government that you may call totalitarianism. Totalitarianism is the most popular expression of government in the history of the human race. It means that the state holds total authority over its citizens and seeks to control all aspects of public and private life. It is the government of great leaders, and it's also the government of Stalin and Hitler and Nero, of tyrants old and new. It is, in some respects, the vilest form of government, and it's also the only perfect form of government that can exist. And it is only perfect when the monarch, the totalitarian ruler, is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father, and the prince of peace, the king of kings and the Lord of Lords. So this evening, you can't very well hand over the nations to Christ. You, you can't even do much tonight to hand over our church to Jesus, but you can hand over your life and your heart to Him. And that is where this glorious expansion of the kingdom of Jesus, the government of Jesus begins. So will you say to the Lord, I will make you my Lord. I will make the King my King. I will make you the ruler over every thought, over every word, over every choice. Now, perhaps he has been your king for a long time. I know that to be the case with many of you, but can you think of an area in your life that may not be thoroughly given over to his rule? Can you expand his government over your budget, over your schedule, over your thought life? Think of one way to increase the government of Jesus in your life and commit yourself to that this evening, tomorrow morning, as you head into the new year. Ponder that.
that challenge, that opportunity,